0: Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring time and consciousness. With me is Dr. Julia Mossbridge, who is a visiting fellow at the Institute of Noetic Sciences in Nevada, California. She is a visiting scholar in the psychology department at Northwestern University. She is also the Science Director at Focus at Will Labs, and she is an Associate Professor in Integral and Transpersonal Psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. She is, has also invented and patented Choice Compass, a physiologically based decision-making app. Dr. Mossbridge is also author of Unfolding the Perpetual Science of Your Soul's Work, and The Garden, an inside experiment and co-authored with Imant Barus, Transcendent Mind, Rethinking the Science of Consciousness. Most recently, she has co-authored with Teresa Chung a new book related to Time and Consciousness called The Premonition Code, The Science of Precognition, How Sensing the Future Can Change Your Life. This interview is being recorded on Skype, so now I will switch over to the Skype video. Welcome, Julia. It's a pleasure to be with you. I've been looking forward to Uh, This interview for a long time, actually. And uh, our topic of time has got to be one of the most fascinating subjects to explore. Time and consciousness. Uh, The interesting thing to me about time is, is that uh, in physics, it seems that time could just as easily go backwards as forwards. But in our normal day-to-day experience, uh, virtually everybody has been indoctrinated to see time as is pointing in only one direction, from past to future.
1: Thanks for having me here, Jeffrey. And yes, I agree. That is, you know, within one minute, you've said the basic, um, you've you've stated the basic problem in mm. this area very well. And I and I think this next century will be largely about and I'm totally biased because I love time and I research time, right? But anyway, I think this next century will be largely about trying to understand this seeming disconnect between our daily waking experience of time and uh, physical reality. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're just starting to really get it that we don't understand it. And that's really the first step, right, to, to, to remedying some kind of disconnect or some kind of lack of Lack of understanding is really understanding how much you don't understand. And so I'm really good about talk. I'm really good at talking about how much we don't understand about time. So if that's
0: what you want me yeah. to do. <laughs> well, well, of course, we'll talk about what we do understand as, as well. And I suppose a starting point is that many philosophers and scientists say that our experience of time is totally conditioned by our nervous system and brain. And it, we may not be experiencing time as it actually is. In fact, we probably certainly are not.
1: Well, let's break that down a little bit. When uh-huh. you say "as something actually is,"
0: uh-huh.
1: what what you're saying is you privilege um, something that we call physical reality as being the correct and true way, and our perceptual or experiential reality as being sort of something that's a little fuzzy.
0: Well, it could right? be the other way around, but <laughs> correct, right? <laughs> it know. really
1: could, and in fact, uh-huh. you'd have to argue. Conservatively, the thing that we have the most information about is whatever we experience. And in yeah. fact, conservatively, you would have to argue that, you know, here on the table I have this little ring, binder ring. Um, my, my experience of this binder ring is primary. That's the first piece of information I have. My, um, the inference I make from that experience is that this binder ring actually exists out of the physical reality. But the, the most conservative stance is, I have an experience of the binder ring, mm-hmm. period. Yeah. Right? So, I just wanted to rewrite your question a little bit okay. so that, so that it doesn't seem to privilege actually as something that is, you know, truly inferential and not primary. Mm-hmm. Um, now having said that, let's assume that there's a physical reality, um, out, because, um, I don't even want to make the argument that there is a physical reality. Let's just, for the sake of argument, assume there is a physical reality outside right. of our experience and mm-hmm. that these inferences that we make about it um, mean something.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, there's a- clearly... Mm-hmm. I was just going to say every single person uh, has this notion that we're born uh, as an infant, we grow big, and then we die. So, the, the time is like really central. We don't even have a life without time.
1: We don't have experience without time.
0: Yeah.
1: So, so, um, even people, right. So, let me answer your first question and then talk about that. So, so, these are all good points, but let's, let's break them down. Okay. Um, so, so now, given the question of, there seems to be this clear experience of a forward, what we call a forward, proge- uh, progression of, of events in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it's really hard to uphold that experience using physical truths. Right. In right. fact, there's evidence that, in fact, time is symmetric and that events are going information about events. And and yeah, information about events um, uh, or events themselves are flowing in uh, for, forward and backward directions. Mm-hmm. Is, I have to put quotes <laughs> because these are all <laughs> our perceptions. Yeah. And, and yes, um every perception we have. Here's the tricky thing, or maybe not so tricky. I don't know. It depends on who you are. But here's, here's the piece that I think is really fascinating. When I talk to people about how time is limited by, for instance, our, our perceptual capabilities, that's much harder for people to understand generally on average than it is for me to say not every um, electromagnetic wavelength is visible. Mm. When, when you say, you know, you can't, not every form of light is visible. People go, yeah, yeah, there's those invisible parts. Yeah. Uh, but with time, it's so personal. I mean, you hit it on the head when you said, when baby, we have the experience of, well, any of us don't have the memory of, but we have the experience of being born, of going through our lives, of eventually getting to the point where we're on the verge of death. Um, that, that is so part of our story of who we are. It's, I think it's very emotionally difficult for people to get it that, that too, that very story of who we are, our very identities, our very experience of reality, um, could potentially be limited by our perceptual abilities. And, and I understand that as I understand that now, after talking to people about it, that, that is I, that's an emotional statement. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not going to be able to get around the emotional component of that. so I just have to talk through it and say yes, it's an emotional statement. But there's something really magical and, and wonderful about grasping that. And then letting it go and recognizing that it doesn't destroy you as a person. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, I, I know it very viscerally right now because I'm applying for a new passport and I had to find my birth certificate. So there is a piece of paper that shows that on December fourth, nineteen forty-six, in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, at one twenty in the morning, I was born. Like it, it places me in time. It seems inescapable.
1: Yeah, now how many people are going to go do your horoscope for you, based on that information? But I just, that's the first thing I thought of. Um, um, yeah, no, right. I mean, it's clear that that's our experience. And even when people talk about these states of, of timelessness, when they go into a meditative state, or they say, oh, I was in a timeless state where space and time didn't exist. But then they'll tell you a story with this thing happened, and then this thing happened, and then this thing happened. Clearly, that's not a timeless story. Clearly, that's a story that has an order of events. Mm -hmm. And that's because the way we talk about experience is through time. I'm not sure there's a, I'm really not sure there's a difference between sort of the temporal flow of the order of events and conscious experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we'd say time, what we generally mean is this order of events thing, Um, even though you can break that down and talk about time in multiple different ways, including duration and synchrony and um, out, things outside of space-time. So anyway, we could go mm-hmm. there if you want. But, um, but it's fascinating how it's extremely difficult to describe an experience that doesn't invoke some kind of order.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I've heard an old joke it uh, goes, you know, why did God create time? and And the answer is to keep everything from happening all at once. All at once, right? But for all we know, everything is happening all at once.
1: Well, it's not to us. I mean, so that's mm. the thing is mm. that, um, our experience is real. I mm-hmm. mean, experiences are real things. Mm-hmm. So I think what, what you mean to say is for all we know in some other mode of like physicality that doesn't have consciousness experiences happening all at once well
0: because what you're saying if i understand well, you,
1: everything is happening all at once is, but what does it mean to happen if you don't have experience i don't know sorry
0: you, you seem to be saying that there, there is no privileged position that our direct day-to-day experience is perfectly valid and there may be some other very different perspective which is also perfectly valid
1: correct yeah it just it's you know, to a bee who can see different wavelengths of light than we can, you know, their, their experience is different than ours. It's not like ours are the correct visible wavelengths of light and the bee is kind of off, mm-hmm. right? It's just, it's a different way of perceiving mm-hmm. physical reality. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think the reason I want to emphasize that so much is that, um, I think many physicists and scientists have been trained to believe that their job is to describe physical reality and, and, and to believe that that's what they're actually doing. Mm-hmm. And you, I think, and I think that the only thing they can do is to describe their experience because that's all they've got.
0: You started your career in neuroscience by investigating auditory phenomenon and, and you discovered there even paradoxes involving time.
1: Yeah, actually, before that, I was studying pain and stress in the nervous system. And even there, I was looking at time of oscillations of painful and stressful experiences over Mm -hmm. the day, over the week, over the lifespan. Um, So I was thinking about that, but not doing a lot of research on that. But then, yeah, my research, when I actually started doing productive research, I was thinking about the auditory system. And part of, I think, what drew me to the auditory system was a recognition when I was working with, with whale communication and trying to understand killer whale calls what was going on there, this recognition that this was a signal that was embedded in time. You could not separate temporal flow from these signals. Whereas in the visual system, you know, here's a note on the table. You could look at the note, and really the temporal component is the time that it takes for those photons to reach your retina and for your visual cortex to do the processing. That's the time component of that. There's a time component. Mm-hmm. But it's not embedded in the signal. It's embedded in the time it takes for things to get done, right? The auditory system. If you think of like frequency on the y-axis and time, linear time on the x-axis, like a killer whale call is like, right? And so the meaning of the call is not just at the beginning. It's not in the middle. It's not in the end. It's in the shape over time. It is literally embedded. It's like a, like a visual movement. The meaning is embedded in the in the order of events. So, and same with language,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. same with anything that's in the auditory system. So that's why I started asking those questions in the auditory system, because here's a system that has to, has to sort
0: out time. Mm -hmm. And and I, I gather you discovered it's very tricky because some types of auditory signals take longer to process than others.
1: Well, yeah, it is tricky because it's not, we, we sort of have this idea that, um, I mean, when you're naive to how any kind of uh, any kind of system works, it's easier to think that it's um, simple than when you actually get to know it, right? Mm. So that's that's probably good because not everyone in the world wants to do auditory neuroscience or cognitive neuroscience or anything. But but so when I started thinking about the brain in time, I was thinking there's got to be like a date time stamp that it, basically when something comes in, it goes stamp. Mm. Oh, it came in at this time stamp, and then it can line them all up. Mm-hmm. and put them all together
0: the way a computer a, would do it
1: yes yeah, the way a computer would do it. what came in first well that's the thing i'm going to present to consciousness i'm going to mm-hmm. tell consciousness that there was a snap and then there was a clap and this came in before and then this came in turns out there's no date time stamp mm-hmm. it has to reconstruct what came in and different sounds with different amounts of bandwidth different amounts of information in them and and going through different parts of this hacked thing that we call the nervous system um they're going to take different amounts of time to process. Meanwhile, the visual system operates at a completely different speed, and it's in another part of the brain. So it has to do its thing. Then the somatosensory system is doing its thing. And you have some kind of way, if you believe that the brain is making your conscious experience, mm. which, you know, we're all, probably everyone who is part of your audience is thinking, maybe that's not what's going on, and I'm right there with you. Mm. But if you believe the brain is representing to you some kind of experience of external reality, then you have to find a way that all these pieces are lined up and presented to you in some kind of sensible way that that makes sense. It doesn't have to be a way that's accurate;
0: mm-hmm. it just
1: has to be a way that makes sense and is consistent over time, so you can learn language.
0: And right? ulti- ultimately, for the survival of the species, it has it has to work.
1: It has to work. It has to be consistent. It just doesn't have to be accurate. Yeah. Yep.
0: Well, now you've also engaged in a series of meta-analyses of a whole uh, important line of experiments in parapsychology that seem to show the nervous system is capable of registering a signal before the signal occurs.
1: Yeah. Now, is it registering a signal? Sorry, I keep questioning your questions, but okay. I can't help myself. I'm very precise about language, but usually when others are speaking, and when I speak, I'm like, "Whoa!" So sorry about that. So, no, it's a habit. no,
0: please do it. It's fine. I like it. <laughs> it's,
1: it's like a training students kind of habit, but I know you're not my student, so I hope you don't feel bad about it. Um, so I would suggest that the results that I was looking at, which I'll explain in a second, have less to do with... Um, sensing a signal and more to do with sensing the future state of the organism So, um, but here, here's the kind of experiments we were looking at and it was one meta-analysis and then some follow-up discussions of that meta-analysis as well as some reviews that mm-hmm. I wrote with Dean Radin about precognition as a field so first just to talk about what precognition is in, mm-hmm. case, in case on the odd off chance people don't know precognition is the scientific name for getting information about events in the future that's accurate um when that information is not obtained through sensory cues whether they're conscious or subconscious um not obtained through inference logical inference you know it's tuesday and that means i'll go to work that's Mm. not precognition um and is not obtained through direct cause like i really love watermelon and i had a dream about watermelon and then i made myself watermelon for lunch not (laughs) precognition (laughs) so so Precognition has those caveats you know, in order to define it as the particular type of intuition. Now, pre-sentiment, which is what the meta-analysis in 2012 that you're referring to that I did with uh, Patrizio Tresoldi at University of Padova and Jessica Otz at UC Irvine, that meta-analysis was focused on pre-sentiment or what we called uh, predictive anticipatory activity, which we called pre-sentiment to try to get it in the door of a mainstream mm. press, which worked. Um, So, that meta-analysis is all about, um, and I'm going to use my hands to talk about time in a second. So I'm setting them up. Is all about physiological, what Dean calls Dean Radin calls pre-sponses to events that are predicted by random number generator in the future. So no one on the planet knows what the next event is that a participant in one of these experiments is going to experience. No one on the planet knows, and even the software. You know, depending on the, mm-hmm. on the random number generator, even the software doesn't know what this next event is. But you can see this pattern where the physiological system that is being continuously recorded during an experience where a person is sitting in front of a computer, you could see this pattern where the physiological system is seemingly responding differently in the seconds leading up to an emotional event, such as, getting a guess right in a guessing game or seeing a picture of someone pointing a gun at you. Those are both emotional events Uh, versus a a neutral or less emotional event, such as getting a guess wrong, which can be emotional, but in the opposite direction, or seeing a picture of a sunset, which Mm -hmm. is just more neutral, less emotional. And you can see this consistently. We looked at 26 experiments. You can see this consistently across these experiments. Um, And when you combine them using meta-analytic statistical tools, you can see that the chances of this, the the possibility that this has occurred by chance um, is rather small mm-hmm. and, and, and convincingly if, small.
0: If I understand that research correctly, it's both the content of the stimulus and the precise timing of the stimulus that are both uh, randomized.
1: Uh, it depends on the study. Mm-hmm. It depends on the study, and the reason that it matters at all, you know, whether that's the case methodologically, is that um, you could argue that someone might get into. So it has been argued that someone might get into a physiological oscillation. So if you if you're if you're not jittering the time of the event, you could say, oh well, that's because they happen to be on this up The problem with that argument is it falls flat because first you run these experiments with multiple people who are going to have different oscillations but second let's say that there's something about the experiment that puts them into the same oscillatory state each person is getting a different series of random events some of which are going to be these emotional ones like pictures of the person with the gun pointing at you some are going to be the pictures of the sunset type ones and those are going to happen at different times so for some people they'll be up at this peak and for other people you know they'll see the gun here and for other person they'll see the sunset here which is going to wash it out Mm -hmm. if that's the explanation so that's not a good explanation for the effect but it's a nice try.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: people have been trying for years to think of good reasons why this could happen. And so a lot of the explanations have to do with, um, Oh, over time you're seeing a lot of these and it just so it just could happen in this way where it works out that the is of these events is influencing. So um, I ended up wanting to do a series of experiments where I just did one trial because it's really hard to make any of these arguments about oscillations or timing, of stimuli or um, expectation effects that have to do with order of events when there's only one trial, right? So mm. if it's really something that's going on, you just get a bunch of people, you give them each one trial. It's either an emotional or neutral one, and you compare across people. It's a more difficult setup because comparing across people never has as much power as statistically as comparing between Mm-hmm. Groups. I mean, sorry, yeah, across people doesn't have as much power as, as comparing within a person because mm-hmm. you have more noise, but it's powerful in that all these explanations get thrown out. And mm-hmm. so I did, I did a couple studies um, just using one trial and showed this consistent gender difference that I had seen in the lab um, in two different physiological systems. So in changes in skin conductance, uh, which has to do with sort of how much sweat your sort of arousal, and in changes in heartbeats. Um, and this gender difference has been really fascinating to me. So I've been pursuing that and hormone, mm-hmm. uh, potentially reproductive hormone differences. I'm very fascinated by where that could go. I'm self experimenting with the hormones. So that's
0: exciting. And, and as I recall, I know the gender differences are complex and, and subtle, but I believe it shows that women who are younger seem to show less of this physiological precognition than men. Is, is that right?
1: Um, yeah, I don't want to put a nail in that coffin. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I sort of feel like that's what I've seen so far, Yeah, but another interpretation is they show it, but in the opposite direction, mm. but still, I mean, I got to say the two experiment, I mean, that would be the correct interpretation of the two experiments that I've done that, that are sort of out there. Um, mm-hmm. but it's, but when I go look at non-physiological, so I sort of transitioned from physiological to behavioral stuff because I wanted to stretch it back further in time. Yeah. Physiology, you're looking at seconds, and I wanted to go further back to minutes, so I started going behavioral, which is where you could do that. Um, so looking further back in time, I'm seeing these things where women are showing precognition just as much. These are all unconscious behavioral tasks. So yeah. it's all, It's all not conscious. Women are showing it, but in the opposite direction. So, like where men may be showing one effect, women are showing the same effect, but in the opposite direction. Which young, is, young, younger women? Younger women. Younger before women before menopause.
0: But what we're, when you say the opposite direction? I think what you mean is what is sometimes called psi missing. They they seem to know the correct target, but then their their response is opposite.
1: That would be the case on a conscious precognition task where you yeah. have a correct answer. Yeah. Right. But on, so some of Daryl Bem's um, unconscious or implicit precognition tests, let me give you an example so that we can talk about this uh, with an example in mind. Um, he has a nice task called retroactive uh, priming.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So in a normal, forward normal, in the, in the psychology world for decades, people have been doing forward uh, priming tasks yes. where you might see um, a word, like an adjective, like disgusting, And then a picture, like a girl that's licking an ice cream cone. And then the question that you have to respond to quickly is, was that a positive or negative picture? Mm. Well, it's harder to think that's a positive picture, which it is as a girl licking an ice cream cone, when you just saw the word disgusting. Mm. So you're going to take longer to press the word positive Mm. on the keyboard or the letter that stands for positive. If you saw the word delightful or delicious, it's just going to be faster. There's no cognitive dissonance, right? Okay, so that's a forward priming experiment. So you reverse it in time. Now what he did, which was brilliant, was he said, let's um, show the picture. Now you have to classify whether that was positive or negative. After you classify whether it was positive or negative, now I'm going to show you an adjective that either matches or doesn't match. And what he showed was that the same effect was obtained, which is that you're slower in responding to your picture ranking when the picture was one way positive or negative and it didn't match. And, and, and the word that comes after mm-hmm. your response was the other way. So that's a brilliant mm-hmm. experiment that has now been replicated, I think more than 15 times. Um, and it doesn't always have a positive result or a significant result, but when you take them all together, mm-hmm. you do show that it replicates. Okay. So that's that. So what I'm saying is in that task, if someone, if, if, what I have seen is both ways. So it's there's some kind of complicated story going on. Mm-hmm. So with some results, what I've found and I'm working on a meta analysis about this, but so far with some results, I see younger women um, absolutely going in the, in the direction that Daryl originally published and younger men going in the opposite direction. And in other studies of the same task, I see the swap, mm. but it's like, It's like there's an agreement. If you do this, we're going to do this. I mean, it's bizarre. (laughs) It's like there's an agreement on polarity, Uh some kind of agreement on this is what we're going to do this time. It's bizarre. And it reminds me a little of the Ottman Spocker stuff that you probably know about, about correlations being the thing that replicate rather than the actual, um, actual result per se.
0: Oh No, I'm actually not familiar with that work. Maybe for the benefit of our viewers, you could elaborate a little.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I'll mess it up, but I, it's based on this, um, yeah, so I I will not do it justice. But okay. it's based on Ottman Spocker. Uh, Ottman Spocker is at um, the IGPP in Freiburg, Germany, mm. which is a really neat institution where there's a bunch of people studying um, parapsychology yes. and, at, at a high level.
0: The and, Institute for Sabita Psychologie.
1: Yes, I do speak German. So I was going with IGPP, but correct.
0: (laughs) 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 A a very significant parapsychology research center in Freiburg, Germany.
1: Absolutely. And I I have a collaborator there, Mark Whitman, and he invited me to go speak there um, about the Premonition Codebook and and that work, the work that we're talking about right now. And Atman Spocker was there, and we went up to dinner. Was he at dinner? I can't remember. And I was – I can Mm – I get frustrated with that approach of the correlation approach. Uh, let me tell you what basically the approach is, and not go into detail. the they The idea is that people have a hard time replicating some psi experiments, and maybe that's because we're not supposed to be able to send a signal back in time, and so because of the no signaling theorem in quantum mechanics. And so maybe what, but we still believe psi is real, and we have evidence that it is. And so maybe one of the reasons maybe one of the ways I work works is to create these correlations. Like I was talking about this gender correlation, mm-hmm. gender age correlation.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and that it's the correlation itself that replicates at a rate higher than chance. It's not the direction of the correlation. Uh-huh. It's not, it's not which things correlate with mm-hmm. which things. The problem, the reason I get frustrated with that approach is, is um, I keep seeing this gender age thing literally being the thing that correlates and not other things. Uh-huh. So to me, it feels like there's something there that's specific, but the direction of the correlation is different. So what does that mean? So anyway, I'm trying to figure this out.
0: Well, if <laughs> if only we had more researchers like other fields of science and more studies, we might be able to sort these things out better. Well, I
1: think we need much bigger numbers. Yeah. I mean, our, our ends are small, and my I complain about that in the field, and my ends are still small. Mm-hmm. I mean, my biggest study has... 2,400 people, but it's still small mm-hmm. because what I was trying to do is chop those people up into individual difference experiments so that number goes down really quickly once mm-hmm. you look at different factors. So, um, yeah, definitely funding for large-scale uh, studies would be great.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you referred a moment ago to, um, something in quantum physics called no signaling. The idea, if I understand it correctly, that, uh, it's simply not possible to use quantum entanglement, for example, to send an actual signal or message, uh, which would mean faster than time or, or, or so faster than light than... or backwards yeah. through time, uh, and my understanding is that, yes, that's sort of a, a consensus today amongst quantum physicists. But I do know that there are researchers who are testing various strategies because they believe that might not be an absolute limit. I think it's not even a consensus anymore. I
1: uh-huh. mean, the more I read on it, and I'm not a physicist, but I keep in touch with that field for obvious reasons. But the the more I read on um, on no signaling and also on physical results um in the quantum in quantum mechanics um it seems clear to me that no signaling theorem there's a great paper by i think his name is john kennedy j.e kennedy i think he wrote it in the 90s Mm -hmm. i'm not sure but anyway you can google it but um where he says look the no signaling theorem was it's really it's redundant it was it was written to um rule out it was written and explicitly to rule out something that people believe didn't exist. And so here's this thing that doesn't exist in nature. We better explain why quantum mechanics can't allow it. Mm. You see, but when you have evidence that precognition exists mm-hmm. and when you have evidence that retrocausality exists in physical symptoms, sy- symptoms, systems, um, then you have a different mm-hmm. world. So you're trying to explain a different world. So you end up, there's a really beautiful article by Hugh Price about using retrocausality. And, and another author whose name I can't remember, using retrocausality to um, solve some of the problems of entanglement. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, still they believe that you can't, uh, that, that that is not the same as superluminal or faster than, than the speed of light signaling. So anyway, there's whole discussions about this. My, my take-home message, it's all fair game. No, yep. rules, no rules are um, sacred.
0: And I keep reading about new experiments every month that are endeavoring to break through that barrier.
1: Yeah, and it's not even a barrier. I think it might be a barrier that we erected ourselves. I don't, Mm -hmm. I never bought into that hole. I think I'm an empiricist. So, you know, if you show me that you can do something, the rule that says that you can't is kind of (laughs) useless.
0: Well, now speaking of empiricism, uh, yes. I, I think it's fair to include your own personal experience as empirical data. And uh, I think that's what William James meant when he talked about radical empiricism. And, and I know in your case, uh, you've written in, in your book, The Premonition Code, that you, you believe your life was saved by precognition.
1: Yeah. Well, let's, okay. So just back to uh, empiricism. It's not only fair to admit your experience as as empirical evidence, it's all we have. <laughs> <laughs> what else what else are you admitting as empirical <laughs> evidence? Like what do we, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I read the thermometer and it showed me it was 76 degrees Fahrenheit. That's your experience. Mm-hmm. I looked at my computer program that analyzed my quantum mechanical results and it showed me that the photons showed this this pattern in their interference pattern. That's your experience. It's literally yeah. we're stuck. We're stuck with our experience but, so it's not just fair it, it's the limiting factor but in terms of my own ex- but there is a separation between experience that can be validated when other people do the same kind of experiment so that's subjective experience that's validated by a third person
2: yeah. and
1: an experience that is like this is my story and no one else is going to have the dreams that i had because those were my dreams they were inside yeah. you know my experience and so i get what you're saying
0: it gets so- dismissed as anecdote
1: yeah, but of course, as every scientist in every field knows, the whole reason you go into science is because you have anecdotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, a person who becomes a nuclear physicist has anecdotes where they have this experience of being completely on fire the first time they hear about fission, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's just like, that's where we get our passions. So, yeah. whatever anecdote. That's only like the motivating force for the universe. But, um, but yeah. And, and the problem with anecdote is we can fool ourselves, and that's why it gets dismissed. Mm-hmm. So every story I have, like even the story, I'll tell the story about where I felt that it saved my life, but every story that we have isn't as good as a controlled, rigorous scientific experiment, because what if I was fooling myself? Mm-hmm. And even in scientific experiments, we could fool ourselves, but it's just a little better. So here's the story. Um, I think you're referring, actually, it's probably happened a couple of times, but I think you're referring to when... Um, that that fire, fire story,
0: right? Well, I'm thinking of a dream where you were told to turn to the right, and
1: uh... oh no, that's my co-author Teresa.
0: Oh, that's her dream. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. but you had one too, so you tell your yeah, story. So this
1: yeah. was actually different. This wasn't a okay. dream. I often since I was a kid, I've had precognitive dreams, which is why I'm even in this field at all. Yes. Um, just that were very compelling, and and I my first dream. But I remember Precognitive Dream was find, uh, finding out that my um, friend, Yushane, had lost her watch on the playground. And that is what happened the next day at recess. Oh, and it was at recess. So there were these three, Yushane, watch, playground, recess. Four, although we always had recess on the playground. So three correspondences mm-hmm. between my dream. Sorry, I have to add it myself. Um, three correspondences between the dream and the events. So I thought that was special. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was about a watch, which I think is really interesting. Uh, just because that's a time thing. Um, a time piece. Having said that. So the dream in the book that I talk about wasn't a dream. And I don't, I, I, I it, it was a compulsion. So, um, it was, it's like a, a, precognitive compulsion is like a, it's like a waking dream where instead of knowing something you, that is happening or going to happen, you, you know that you have to do something. Mm. So it's this action. Um I think it's some people call it the side-mediated response yeah. kind kind yes. of thing. Yeah. So I was I was uh waiting for my son to get home from school and I was a little agitated and I was at the kitchen sink doing dishes and my son comes in and I see that he's put his bike away because he doesn't have his bike with him and he always rode
0: home oh, from school. Yes.
1: Yeah. And at the time I was with my boyfriend who's now my husband and he um he was seemingly He's now fine, but he was at the time seemingly dying of a lung disease and he had an oxygen tank. And so I was taking care of the household. And so my son comes in and I start yelling at him, which is unusual for me. Uh, clearly I'm agitated and I don't really understand why, but I'm but I'm consciously thinking I'm mad at him because I don't think he locked the garage door. Hmm. So I say, you know, Joseph, you gotta you go back and you lock the garage door, or at least check if you locked it. And he says, like, what? I just got home. And you know, like, we don't even live in a really bad neighborhood. Like, why? Why is this so important right now? And I was like, just do it. Like, I can't believe you just just you have to take responsibility for your things, and you're not being conscious of your things. And I was just telling some kind of story, and none of it made any sense. It was I was very mm-hmm. agitated. And my boyfriend, in between breaths, goes, "Jill, just go to the garage and check it yourself. If it's that big a deal, it's not even that far away." Because he's trying to like he's he can see that I'm being outrageously agitated for no reason and my son who just is exhausted and came home from high school or i guess eighth grade and so i find fine so i go out to the garage and the door's locked and i'm like still i'm agitated like the door's locked he did the thing that i wanted him to do you know uh but i'm agitated i come back in the house and on my way back in the house i see the electrical meter and it's on fire and it's slowly building and it's silent. It doesn't smell like anything. This is an electrical fire. And I see through the, the play glass window that on the other side of where the electrical meter is of the wall is my boyfriend's oxygen tank. And I'm like, get off! So <laughs> I run in the house. I turn off the electricity. I call the fire station. Everything's fine. Um, but that compulsion that would not go away and that I thought was unreasonable, but it led me out of the house to see
0: that. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I can say just parenthetically, my viewers have probably heard me talk about it elsewhere, that uh, my whole life has been changed by dreams of that sort. Well, this, in my case, a dream that led to a compulsion. I acted out a dream. Back in 1972, and that's why today I'm doing media, which is wow. another. Do you story. want to talk about? Like, are you willing to
1: talk about, it or do you not want to no, talk no, about?
0: No, I, I can. I'll repeat it. Some viewers have probably heard it, but I, I was uh, a graduate student in criminology at oh. Berkeley. I was doing field work in San Quentin Prison. I have a master's degree, in fact, but I wanted to switch from negative forms of human deviance to positive and you know, the university at the time offered no opportunity. You could study crime and psychopathology all you wanted, but you couldn't really, at Berkeley, find an opportunity to study uh, the things that interested me, which was mysticism, parapsychology, intuition, and creativity. Uh,
2: All the good stuff, yeah. (laughs) yeah.
0: So, So, I struggled and struggled. And one day, I had a dream. In fact, not only did I have a dream, I knew before going to bed that night that the answer was going to come in a dream. And I had this dream, uh, and I woke up in the morning with this feeling of eureka. I found it, but I didn't know what it was. I actually had to act out the dream and, uh, which was I was visiting some friends in Berkeley, knocked on the door of their apartment, uh, but they weren't home. And in the dream, I knew where they kept the key. I took the key, let myself into their apartment. There in the middle of the living room floor was a magazine, and I was picked it up, page through it. The magazine was named I, E-Y-E. Now, in the dream? You're telling me the dream or what happened? This is the dream. This is all the dream. Well, then I woke up at that moment feeling, oh, I this is the answer. But, In order to find it, I had to run across Berkeley five miles to this uh, married student housing, knock on the door of my friend's house. They were not home. And in fact, I knew where they kept the key. (laughs) I let myself into their living room. There, as I had dreamt, was the magazine. It was not called I. It was called Focus. I was paging... pretty close. (laughs) (laughs) I was paging through the magazine in their house when it dawned on me that... I could pursue my interests by getting involved in what this magazine was all about. It was the magazine of listener-sponsored radio and TV, public television and radio in the San Francisco area, KQED. And as I paged through it, I thought to myself, I could pursue my interests this way. So I went and volunteered at the local Berkeley Pacifica radio station, KPFA and that was my start. I didn't own a radio or TV at the time. I didn't believe in electronic communication. I was a long-haired hippie, and I thought that the only authentic communication is face-to-face, but I changed my mind at that moment. (laughs) In a big way. In a big way, and that was 45 years ago. (laughs) and it it, it, that one dream really literally changed my life
1: okay but what i love Mm. about that story besides how beautiful it is um in addition what what makes it even richer is it contains the three most common forms of precognition in one story Mm. so you had a waking flash of insight that tonight i'm going to have a dream that's going to answer so that's one it's a waking waking precognitive flash that you're conscious of two the precognitive dream, the most form in, common form of precognition, and three, the precognitive compulsion. Yeah, where you not only get to have the dream, you have to you have to actually have the compulsion. You have to actually have the urgency that it takes to get five miles away to do the thing. Yeah. So yeah, way to go.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so all of that happened, and and of course it raises uh, when we talk about precognition. A lot of people have trouble with it because they say. Uh, well, if if I can predict the future, it means the future's already happened, and if that's the case, I don't have any free will. Right. Let's talk about that. Yeah. That is the mo- one of the, when I'm, I've been traveling, doing a book tour around the
1: country for the Premonition Code, and the number one question that I would say comes up repeatedly is, what does this have to do with free will, and do we have any free will? And the funny thing is, um, and the thing I kind of keep forgetting to say, but keep thinking about. So I want to say it clearly here. So I'll try as many times as it takes to say clearly. But, um, I think it's completely orthogonal to, I think, I think whether things are predetermined or not is completely orthogonal to free will, by which I mean has nothing to do with free will. And, and so let me run down the argument for you here, um, and see if this makes sense. Okay. Let's imagine that everything's predetermined. Mm. So already we know that tomorrow I'm going to, you know, hop in the car and go see my friend and every single, every single event is predetermined. So let's imagine that. So there's a situation which um, you could imagine having free will in that situation, which is I already am going to decide and I truly will decide that I want to go visit my friend and that will be my decision. And yet the universe is aware that that will be my decision. Mm. And so that happens, right? There's also a way in which I could not have free will in that situation. Um, I, the universe or something else outside of me is sort of forcing me to just have the experience of deciding that I'm going to go visit my friend, but it is already decided that it will force me to have that experience. So you see how it has nothing like you can imagine free will or no free will in the same situation of predeterminism and the mm-hmm. same thing goes for things not being predetermined if nothing's predetermined you could still imagine not having free will so nothing's predetermined we have no idea what's going to happen and also you don't get to choose what happens mm. right so we confuse does that make sense we confuse this idea of free will with predeterminism or no predeterminism and, it, and it's completely not the same thing does that make sense
0: well, it does make sense. I probably in my mind would conceptualize it differently. The way I think of it is that, um, our notions of free will and determinism, uh, are, you know, they're human notions that, that we, uh, have have developed because of uh, our history and our nervous systems. And I suspect that reality is just far more complex than we humans are even capable of conceiving.
1: Yeah, I think that's possibly the same thing with a different spin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, We just, we don't know, Mm -hmm. but we tell these stories about it. And I think the funniest thing about free will is people focus a lot on the will part of the free part, but not so much as the on the I part. Who is it that we're talking about that we think has free will? Mm -hmm. Is it our bodies? Is it our brains? Is it our minds? Is it this universal consciousness thing? And so let's ask about the we or the I, because that's really the answer is really going to depend on that.
2: Mm -hmm. I think
1: not so much on how you define free will actually depends on all of it, of course. But let's put a little more focus on that.
0: And there, it seems to me that you're getting into, um, really, the mystical literature is it addresses that question more thoroughly uh, than any other literature I'm familiar with.
1: Which is funny, because if you start reading quantum mechanics, um, this question of, like, who is the mind or who is the consciousness mm. that's collapsing, you know, collapsing yeah. the wave function... Um comes up and then you realize uh oh you need an answer to that question and it's not right now in science and it is in the mystical literature and they're not talking to each other so much although more now than before right
0: well the founders of quantum physics uh, people yes. like schrodinger and uh, they
1: were they were reading mystical literature
0: yes they were yeah mm-hmm. yeah
1: born schrodinger yeah yeah, yeah.
0: for sure uh, and you have joined, as I recall, a, a new organization which is dedicated to uh, promoting uh, what I would call idealist metaphysics.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting, I like idealist, I'm not sure it's, a, okay, um, yeah, I'm not sure it's idealist, I think it's just post-materialist. Okay. So that, that's what we agreed on for the title, because some of us are, are, are not idealists, well, I'm not there, an
0: idealist. There are a number of options
1: yeah there's another materialism isn't the only option that's the point and it's yeah. called the Academy for the Advancement of post materialist sciences
2: mm-hmm.
1: and part of uh, some of us think that the physical world absolutely exists, including me and um and that it's not primary or probably not primary I would say i'm ninety nine percent sure that we have all the evidence we need to to say that the physical world is not primary mm-hmm so yeah yeah it's a great organization started by gary schwartz and a, and a group of other folks including myself who came together but gary Sh- uh, schwartz and marjorie Woolicott, uh neuroscientists from the university of oregon really spearheaded it mm-hmm. and sort of herded the cats into a room to try to make this happen and we're hoping that it is a mentorship and and um, service organization that helps a lot of people. So,
0: mm-hmm. well, back to precognition and, mm-hmm. and time, time and consciousness. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you in, are developing a, a model for helping people to become what you call positive precogs. Yes. And, yes and, and you write very eloquently about all the benefits for somebody who might want to do that, uh, which is interesting because there are so many warnings about even people who say, "Oh, yes, precognition is real, but don't mess with it. You might get yourself into trouble, and you
1: might i mean, so we put warnings in the book and on the website too, mm-hmm. so um because it's true that you might if you're not psychologically stable or you come from a family with a history of mental illness." like I do, um, you have to be careful mm-hmm. because if you have any tendency to have a difficult, uh, ability to, if you have difficulty, um, keeping yourself from being delusional. So I don't have that problem, but I could given my family history. So someone else could, um, then once you start clearly getting information about future events and you convince yourself that that's actually happening, uh, in a rigorous way, multiple times, um, you can kind of go nuts with it and that's not helpful. And it also, by the way, isn't helpful for your precognitive ability, right? Mm. Staying very grounded and staying, um, aware of your own limits is really helpful mm. for, for precognition. Whereas um, getting egoic about it or saying, I'm God and I'm omniscient and I'm omnipotent. It's not going to help you at all. So, <laughs> um, so yes, I think those warnings are important, but the way that they're phrased is often, Like, oh, completely stay away. This is a taboo thing, and it's going to mess you up, and it might be the devil's work or something like that. Um, Those kind of warnings are not what we have in the book because Mm -hmm. we don't believe that's the case. It's just like, no, just like anything um, that is important. So I think precognition is, my co-author and I, Teresa Chung, and I both think precognition is important for the future of humanity. Just like anything that's important and powerful, Uh, you have to be careful when you use it, especially something that changes your worldview and your perspective so drastically once you start really practicing it. Mm -hmm. So the point of the positive precog movement that we wanted to create with the book and the website is to put a frame around precognition that avoids the two most popular um, problems when people talk about precognition. So one problem is among non-scientists who often want to make it something special Like Let me tell you about my story about precognition and how special I am or how creepy it was. So we want to make it special or creepy. And while it is special in the sense that it's really interesting and considered anomalous, it's so common that it's almost like when someone says to you, let me tell you how I sat down on a piano and played Mary Had a Little Lamb. You're like, Why would you want to tell me that? Why don't you go take piano lessons and learn how to play the Moonlight Sonata, right? And so, so, but we treat it as if it's something that, oh, this thing happened and it's weird and we're going to put it in this camp of things that I don't understand, right? And then we have this other camp uh, from scientists who are not familiar with the literature often and who say, well, that's just crazy or pseudoscience. And so the idea of the book and the website are to say, nope. So precognition is scientifically validated. Precognition is something that can be useful. Precognition is something that can be dangerous if you don't use it right, but it's not that dangerous generally for most people. And here's a way, here's a way to sit down and actually create a conscious practice of controlled precognition. Like you would have a meditation practice, because something that's really cool about precognition is not only is it useful in your life, like just your regular life, it's useful to know that someone's going to cancel a meeting, right? Just. It's not only useful in your regular life. It changes you in a really positive way for most people if they could stay grounded um, because you know your mind. So so as long as you're practicing a kind of controlled precognition or what we call in the book controlled precognition is really a subset of remote viewing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so a kind of controlled precognition where you can have a right and wrong answer. So you could learn from failing. And you don't get to make an excuse like, oh, well, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. No, when you fail, like that's, you you get to, you get to fail and that's okay. And that's part of the practice of seeing and learning. Oh, when my mind demands that something is true and started, starts building castles in the sky, I can learn over time that that's almost always going to be false. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and you start to learn it and almost play games with and, um, almost, almost feel like you're getting jokes told to you by your subconscious or your superconscious minds i mean almost like you're developing this relationship that um with your future self mm-hmm. where um you feel a strength in knowing your whole self mm-hmm. and knowing the silly parts of yourself and the disgusting part of yourself and the part of yourself that wants to be really good at this and can't stand that it fails and all those parts come to play so, it's like a meditation practice, but with feedback.
0: You tell a wonderful story in your book about a biologist at uh, UC Santa Cruz, Damer, yeah. Damer I believe, yeah. Who, yeah. who who worked with my old friend David Diemer in uh, yes. in coming up with a, a whole uh, new model of the origin of life it, yes. it, itself. So, it's very important scientific work, but he had a... Uh, Conversation with his future selves that seemed as a child, you you describe yeah. it and how that changed his life. Uh, could you tell that story?
1: Yeah, and I and I and Bruce and I are are friends largely because we had similar experiences. So I wanted to tell his story rather than mine because he puts it so it's kind of adorable. So he was, I think he was ten or eleven, and he was walking, taking a walk to celebrate his birthday, and. He had the experience. It's better put in the book because he, he, uh, he edited it. So it was really accurate. So this is a shadow of what's in the book. But basically he had the experience of seeing his future selves line up. And he said to them, I want you to sign a contract. And he put up an imaginary contract for them. You know, I want you to sign this contract that says you will always send positive energy back to your little, littler selves because they were always doing the best they could. Mm-hmm. And do you, I mean, do you, that's so powerful, so what happened was they all signed the contract, and he felt this whoosh of energy toward his future and the reason that's so powerful, creating a relationship with your future selves in which it's a positive and loving relationship, mm-hmm. is that is that um, what you're saying is I don't have to do everything right now, I don't have to be everything right now. I get to allow that things will come to me and shift with time. And I get to allow my future to unfold instead of always struggling against, Oh, I don't have this or I don't have that. It's like, it's a different solution to the problem of suffering.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that may be more accessible to people in the West than saying, just be unattached to anything. Mm-hmm. Right. The solution is you don't have to have it all right now because you have a, this, this future self exists.
2: Yeah.
1: And this future self has something that you don't have. At least, at least you know it has the, the knowledge of what happened in the intervening years, right? And so there's something powerful about that. And uh, I'm working on another book about that relationship specifically, mm-hmm. but that's the relationship that you can develop with precognition when you sit down and have it be mm-hmm. a practice. And it's, I, I don't know how to emphasize um, how, Beautiful that is, except for to say mm. that that's why that story's in there is to emphasize how beautiful that is.
0: <laughs> it, it reminds me actually. Uh, I haven't even thought about this for probably fifty years. Uh, when I was very young, I like twenty years old, I got a tape recorder and I began making a uh, a diary, you talking into the tape recorder. And I was talking to my future self. And because at the time I knew I was, you know, kind of wild and crazy and my future self would probably look at my 20 year old behavior disapprovingly. And and I, and I was saying to my future self, don't judge me because who I am now is going to be the basis of who you become.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did the same thing. I wrote letters uh-huh. like that every year to my future self about, like, <laughs> I think you're going to be like this, but I was just projecting <laughs> other images of other adults onto my future self, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, it's a really p- powerful part of of success in life is being able to make that relationship
0: uh, mm-hmm.
1: to, to yourself across time. Yeah, it was really cool.
0: Very powerful and profound. And you've talked about how uh, you and your co-author uh, Teresa Chung, how involving yourself in um, studying and practicing precognition has, has had many other positive benefits in your life.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because when I was first doing it, it was for the for two ends. So one end was, look, I'm studying this stuff. I want to sit down and actually train myself, Mm -hmm. right? So that was one end. It's like being an ethnomusicologist and saying, I'm going to learn sitar, right? I want to understand it better from a scientific point of view so I can experience it myself to, to do that. And then the other end was oh, you know, it's going to be great because I'm going to maybe make money with it or I might, Mm -hmm. you know, I might use it for these various, uh, uh, like, I really do use it. I don't use notifications on certain apps on my phone. Instead, I just decide whether I'm going to look. And, you know, I oftentimes have gotten a call exactly at a time when I needed to that I would have missed and I couldn't have had the opportunity or whatever just because I looked at that time. That's a fun way to interact with the world. You're Mm -hmm. really alive when when. You know, you don't need something else to tell you when you should be doing something or what you should be doing. Um, so those were the two ends, and those are great, and those are working, and that's wonderful. But but I didn't realize that there was going to be this other transformation, which is this transformation of uh, connection to myself, which, interestingly enough, when you connect to yourself, you could only connect to yourself really authentically with love with unconditional love. And then as soon as you have unconditional love for yourself, simultaneous to that, it's not a stepwise process, but simultaneous to having unconditional love for yourself, which by the way, I can't say that I always access, but often way more often now than before. Simultaneous to that, there's unconditional love for other people. Mm. And the moment you stop unconditionally loving yourself at any point in time, that cuts it off. So there's no differentiation between self and other when it comes to unconditional love. So connecting with yourself over time is roughly equivalent to connecting in my experience with others at the same time. So there is a reason I think why when people get good at precognition, they're also pretty good telepaths because once you master, you know, not master, but no one's mastered it. But once you get better at this temporal piece, the spatial piece comes with it with no mm-hmm. difference. And I think it's because of the connection love piece, but I'm not
0: sure. Well, you have written that you feel there is a some connection between the nature of time itself and the nature of love. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's a big puzzle for me because it's hard to put into words, but it does feel that there's that. And I can't wait to find out what mm-hmm. I mean by that. <laughs>
0: Well, I, I, <laughs> I, somehow they are connected. I have that same intuition. I don't think you I do? can articulate it. Oh yes.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. There's something there, and uh question mark. Yeah. Fun, fun to explore.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I suppose ultimately it has something to do with who we are, but <laughs> which is the deep mystery. <laughs> uh let yeah. me let me bring up another topic i know you uh, have a professional relationship with my old friend marty rosenblatt the founder of the <laughs> applied precognition project
1: yeah yeah i love marty
0: mhm can you talk about uh, what you're doing with marty
1: yeah i'm he has an organization um that's a offshoot from app that's being run by a friend of his who's a, a more businessy guy marty's an investor guy but less an entrepreneur guy Mm -hmm. but michael austin is his name and he's running something called soul writer and they're experimenting with the idea of creating um an investment fund using precognition Mm -hmm. and i'm one of their advisors um and and we're talking about different approaches and one of the approaches might be to use something like the website i have for premonition code um one of the one of the things that I tried to do with the website for premonition code, the part that's called the um, positive precog training yes. part where there's just a richness, uh, there's a rich array of resources there. But one of the resources is a practice, uh, a practice platform that anyone for free can use. And it uses a random number generator to select an image. That's your target image that you're trying to foresee using precognition, controlled precognition. It takes you through the steps and the steps are also written in chapter five in the book as well. But the point is, um, um, It doesn't do it the way Marty does it. So the way Marty does it is people self-judge their ability to – they sketch out whatever they sense and stuff, and then they judge against two pictures, and they're trying to figure out which of the two pictures is the target. The problem is you get a bunch of precogs looking at any two pictures, one of which is the target. It's very easy to think that the wrong picture is the target. It, it takes a lot of work yeah. for people to not see the wrong picture, right?
0: It's called um, displacement.
1: It's called displacement. Yeah. And so they just... so. I, I kind of don't love the word displacement because it suggests that there's a signal that's displacing. And I'm not sure about this whole signal thing. Uh,
0: but well, let, let me back up for just a second yeah. so that our viewers know. I have three interviews in the archives with Marty. But what he oh, has yeah, been you know. doing for over a decade is using yeah. what's known as the associative remote viewing protocol for yep. making small speculations in uh, uh, financial markets and in athletic events.
1: Yep. That's right. And he's been um, fairly successful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, and that's why he's considering building out this yeah. organization. So, But this problem of self-judging, because precogs tend to see things all over time, not just the final picture, which corresponds to the change in the market or the outcome of the sporting game, um, is that uh, they can be wrong a lot more than one would want. And so what I created was in this training was just one picture. And the way you self-judge is you have two graphs. I show people two graphs of two possible targets. One corresponds to the correct target, although the software doesn't know which one is the correct target at the point you're looking at the graphs. The other corresponds to another another target that is not the correct target. And you don't know which is which. No one on the planet knows which is which. The software doesn't know which is which. And so your job is to figure out which of these graphs shows the elements. I have, I think, eight elements there. Which of these elements are present in um, your sketch or your description of the future target? And they're mutually exclusive. So if this one has an animal or a human in it, then this graph will have no animal or human in it. So if you had an animal or human in target, you're going to be better off picking the one that has animal or human. And so then, after you pick, then the software chooses one of them to be the target. And so you only see one picture. Mm. So I'm hoping, people seem to like it because of the lack of displacement, but what I'm hoping is that people can actually perform better on it. And that remains to be seen because people have to first get used to the protocol and deal with these graphs, which they've never dealt with before. So it's a a struggle for people to learn the new thing, but I think it might pay off. Mm -hmm. We'll see.
0: Well, in, in your website, you talk about your vision. For for what you're endeavoring to do by even establishing a category called positive precogs, and yeah. I, what you describe sounds like it's very visionary. It would mean a I would call it a a real change in the way humanity organizes itself, uh, which is that. Uh, people with uh, highly uh, skilled uh, precognitive abilities would become central to many different uh, areas of human endeavor including uh, medicine including financial forecasting law enforcement education Mm -hmm. governments you name it
1: every every field yeah i mean so i think I think we're coming to a point in human history that what's going to get us out of our situation is is are these skills that have been laying dormant and, and underdeveloped. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm super excited about the movie Arrival, which, oh, I, yes. saw, that, that which I saw a- seven times. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I've seen it three times.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I mean, here we have a female scientist, so already I'm in. Like,
0: forget what the rest
1: of the movie is about. Meanwhile, she's saving the world, so that's good. Yeah. And then she's doing it by using essentially time travel, mental time travel. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, I don't want to give any other spoilers, but um, but I think that's a description yeah. of where we need to go. That's being able to use these kind of skills, telepathy, clairvoyance, psychokinesis, um, Precognition, mediumship. I think being able to use these skills and having them be part of our economy, having them be part of the, what we train our children to do, um, how to manage them—that's going to say that's going to that's going to mm-hmm. save humanity. So that's that's my conviction. I could be completely wrong.
0: Well, I share that conviction with you, Julia. I, I really do, <laughs> and uh, I I support your work. I want to encourage all of my viewers to visit your website. We, can you give the URL?
1: Oh, sure. Yes, um, Mm thepremonitioncode.com. And you click on positive precog training, if you want the training, you click on events, if you want to hear about events, you click on, um, it's pretty self explanatory. But you know, those are the two really important ones.
0: Well, I, I subscribe to your vision and I think any of my viewers who, who are interested in, uh, having an opportunity to practice precognition will enjoy, uh, visiting your website and who knows what might come of it. You, I know your goal is to identify people who are more than 80% accurate in, in these precognition tests, so, uh, I hope you or, can. Who,
1: or who are, or who are very good. They don't yeah. have to be more than eighty percent. You know, people who, who are really into it and who want to practice and who are skilled. That's mm-hmm. very interesting. But also, I want to just allow everyone to practice.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think it's a, a wonderful uh, ambition, a wonderful vision. And Julia Mossbridge, thank you so much for sharing this uh, time with me. This has been incredibly exciting. I look forward to be able to do more interviews with you in the future.
1: Thanks. I love it. It's been really great, Jeffrey. It's awesome.
0: Thank you. <laughs>
2: Thank you.